When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. As a member of the U.S. National Security Council, Victor Cha flew over the DMZ, separating North and South Korea in 2007, following negotiations with Pyongyang. He writes in Korea, A New History of South and North, his latest book with co-author and previous podcast guest, Ramon Pacheco Pardo, about how he was struck by the environment on both sides of the border. The North had barren fields, no cars, and windowless homes, the South gleaming skyscrapers, and the global city of Seoul. How did these two countries come apart and then travel down such different paths? And perhaps was the sentiment in ordinary Koreans in South and North about eventually coming back together again? Victor Cha is professor of government at Georgetown University and holds the Korea chair at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. He is a former director for Asian Affairs at the White House National Security Council. Ramon Pacheco Pardo is professor of international relations at King's College London and the KFVUB Korea chair at Free University of Brussels. The three of us talk about Korea's pre-World War II history as a unified nation, their eventual split and divergence, and how feelings about unification may have changed. A quick correction, time of interview, Korea, a new history of South and North had yet to be released in the U.S., but Rohan has informed me since we talked that the book is now out. Now, on with our conversation. So, Victor and Ramon, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Um, Victor, I might want to direct my first question to you, at least first. Um... You know, the book, and I know authors don't get to get to determine their own titles at times, but the book is marketed as a, as a new history um, of Korea. What do you think is currently missing from the way we talk about the history of the Korean peninsula? Um, so I would say a couple of things. The first is that I, I certainly have not come across the history of Korea, the two Koreas, uh, in which you've had authors approaching the history from um, an American and a European viewpoint, um, which I thought was uh, interesting and was one of the reasons why uh, I was very excited about doing this project with my co-author, Ramon. Um, uh, The other is that I really like the way the book uh, integrates the history of the two Koreas chronologically by chapter. So... um, there's a, and Ramon did a lot of this, a really great job of sort of talking about um, what happened in South Korea, for example, in the 1960s and 70s, and then, and then talking about what happened in North Korea. And why that's interesting is that you sort of see, if you think about the paths of two countries as they start out, they, they, you know, they're at, at the beginning in the 60s and 70s, they're kind of somewhat at parity, you know, both of them being strongly supported by their Cold War patrons, right? China and the Soviet Union on one side, United States and Japan on the other. Uh, but then as you start to hit the 80s, you start to see them diverging. Like they start to grow apart. South Korea continues to accelerate forward. 
on a very positive upward path. North Korea starts to head on hit down into a decline that just gets steeper and accelerates faster and faster, such that by the end of the book, you see how how disparate these two countries are in terms of where they've ended up. So I think that's also kind of new and interesting. And then the last thing I would say is that part of the reason we wrote this is um, um, we thought that uh, it's been a while since there's been a book um, about um, uh, the history of modern Korea, um, uh, at least a decade, if not more. And uh, so we saw this as a good opportunity. And the last thing I'll say, I know I said two things, but there are really four things. The last thing I'll say is that um, this book also looks at those things about the history of Korea that are of interest to younger generations. So things like um, K-pop and K-culture, um, the LGBTQ plus movement, women's rights, uh, things that we haven't seen sort of in these broader general histories of Korea. So I think that also makes it new and different. Um, Vermont, Victor brought up an interesting point in his answer, which is um, kind of combining the American and European perspectives on Korea. I mean, is the European perspective on Korea different than, than the American one? I, I would say so, yes. I mean, uh, to reunion, of course, the U.S. has had a far stronger uh, influence and relationship with, with, the, with the Korean Peninsula, obviously the U.S. and South Korea, the lion is, is, is a defining characteristic of, of uh, South Korea today, uh, not only from a security and a foreign policy perspective, but it also influences, of course, uh, domestic affairs in, in, in Korea. And, and that's not the case with South Korea, with uh, Europe, uh, that has a, a different type of relationship. Uh, the interest on the Korean Peninsula in general is far more recent. Uh, I would say that uh, really it only started uh, from the 1990s and in some countries really from, from the 2000s uh, and it was very much uh, culture driven of course uh, the economy modern uh, South Korea's economic growth uh, but many European countries were not necessarily uh, touched by it again uh, uh, until the early uh, 2000s so that's a different sort of relationship and also of course the history of, of, of Europe is different right so the history of Europe we had countries in Central Eastern Europe that were very similar to North Korea until the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, there were uh, communist regimes, uh, dictatorial regimes. So the perception of the Korean Peninsula and the history of the Korean Peninsula, recent history, is very different uh, because their starting point is really uh, how they have this strong relationship with the communist bloc, uh, including North Korea, uh, and how all these uh, kind of disappeared from the 1990s onwards when South Korea became much more important. But then, uh, and vice versa, if you look at the Western European countries, some of them, like like my own home country, Spain, have similar history to South Korea. We were four dictatorships, essentially, that later on uh, became uh, developed countries uh, and also became uh, democracies. So the way you see South Korea and also the relationship between the two Koreas uh, has to be different than if you come from the U.S., which has already far more influence, uh, not only in the Korean Peninsula, but also at the global level. Um, so I'd like to start talking about the history um, of Korea, this is the history that's kind of covered in your book. Um, I mean, you start with the with the pre-war period, war meaning Second World War, um, where uh, 
Korea is kind of the the nexus for a whole bunch of imperialist um, countries jockeying for position. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about about that period, about when when Korea was kind of the um, uh, was kind of like the the center point for all this kind of imperialist jo- imperialist jockeying. Um, maybe maybe Ramon can go first on that question. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about it, but then I think uh, Victor can actually. Um, what, what we see is that the geographical position of uh, Korea when it was a unified country until the two Koreas is it, right at the center of all these uh, big powers. Of course, historically, this had been China and Japan uh, from the late 19th century, early 20th century. You see, obviously, the growing influence of, of, of Japan and then the colonization of of Korea, uh, but you also see the increasing interest that Russia was having in, in, in this part of the world, uh, in a part of the world that maybe Russia was uh, kind of ignoring historically, she was looking more at uh, the European uh, part of the of, of the country, but you see also from the late 19th century, also early 20th century, fighting these wars uh, against Japan uh, to, to try to gain influence uh, and a foothold uh, in the region, I think this is one of the issues that we wanted to showcase uh, in, in in the book uh, that Korea was at the center of this uh, different uh, imperial powers trying to to extend their influence uh, throughout the whole of uh, Asia. Uh, and in the case of Japan, uh, Korea was, for example, the, the starting point, but it wasn't the the ending point. As we saw later on in the Second World War, in the case of Russia, never could you have the influence you would have like to have, but certainly part of his uh, uh, view of global affairs during this, uh, during this time period uh, was to try to also become more of an Asian power that historically maybe had on Guinea. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. The only thing I'd, uh, the only thing I'd add that what Ramon just described is um, in addition to the, these, these sort of geopolitical balance of power currents that were swirling all around Korea at, in the late 19th century. This was also happening at a time when Korea internally was greatly um, conflicted. You know, it was in a, its own transition of trying to determine whether it would modernize along the lines of the West or whether it would stick to sort of traditional Confucian roots or some combination of the two. Um, the 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 last dynasty, the last royal dynasty in Korea was extremely. It was corrupt. It was inept. There was a great deal of inefficiency, and so one of the points we tried to make in the book is when you have this combination of a country that sits, sort of at the uh, geostrategic intersection of the major imperial powers of Asia, and at the same time it's internally uh, not well put together. It's internally conflicted. Um, then, then you know, you have this outcome where it becomes the fate is determined by this balanced power politics among these uh, among these big powers in the region, and that was Korea's fate in the late 19th century. And then throughout the book, we describe how, at least in South Korea, and to an extent in North Korea, by their own different um, sort of non-traditional means, Korea has become a much stronger country uh, in, in internally a much stronger country. Its geography never changes. Uh, but it's become a much stronger country. Well, let's let's talk about then um, then that period, the post-war period, um, and uh, I guess what the two Koreas, I guess primarily South Korea, but you'd usually hear more about North Korea too. What these two countries did to make themselves more 
more secure, um, stronger, stronger intrinsically, I think, is a, which is a word, intrinsic value you're going to use in your book, um, and not just the strategic geopolitical value. What did these two countries actually do? Um, and maybe uh, Victor can go take the lead on this question first. So uh, I'll talk about North Korea, and then Ramon can talk about South Korea. Um, so, you know, what North Korea did, I mean, they did two things, really. I mean, uh, before the end, uh, the post-war through till before the end of the Cold War, um, you know, North Korea invested a lot of its in, in, in its conventional military, and it had a great deal of support from China and the Soviet Union. Um, that allowed it to do quite well, both economically and in terms of their military capabilities. Um, the estimates of um, GDP per capita, I think, between the two Koreas was seen to be about even if if the if not that the North Koreans were ahead through the late 1970s. I mean, so, you know, quite a long period of time, three decades almost uh, after the end of the Second World War. Um, <clears throat> and, and that allowed North Korea to make itself much stronger. Um, after the end of the Cold War, uh, North Korea chose a different path to make itself stronger. Uh, economically, it became weaker. Um, uh, uh, politically, it grew more and more closed. But then it chose, to, you know, it chose the path of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons to make themselves as strong as they could make, at least in one dimension of state power, even though they seem to be failing in every other dimension of state power. So, um, so you know, in in many and after the end of the Cold War, that generous uh, uh, patron assistance that they were getting from China and the Soviet Union started to dry up. I mean, not completely, but dried up a lot compared to what they had during the Cold War. Um, and so that was the only way they became stronger, in quotation marks, is by building weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons. Um, and I guess I will turn over to Victor, I'm sorry, to, to Ramon to talk about South Korea. But I want to add maybe a second question when we talk about South Korea, which is, um, you know, when when does it really become clear that South Korea had had overtaken the North in terms of economic strength, cultural power, whatever, whatever, whatever success metric you want to use. Um, when did it really become clear? I think to everybody that South Korea had overtaken or or had very clearly beaten the North. So, so I think the book we focus on the on the nineteen eighties period, and and not only because uh, of course it's one of the the sole. Uh, Olympic Games, and that was really a coming out party for for for, for South Korea uh, as a whole. Uh, but also because by then you start to see how uh, even countries in the communist bloc want to attract their South Korean investment. Uh, they try to strengthen economic relations with with South Korea. So of course, if you're in Taiwan, it also becomes uh, a democracy, which psychologically obviously um, creates a big uh, difference between the two. Uh, between the two Koreas, but also in the way they are perceived at the uh, at the global level, uh, and I think this is uh, the decade when you when you start to see uh, South Korea pulling uh, really uh, apart from 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 North Korea in an economic uh, sense. Uh, I think culturally, uh, I mean, how you started in the late 1990s, uh, the, the Korean wave in in countries such as uh, China, Taiwan, or or, or Japan, as well as, as, as Southeast Asia. So I think culturally also from the 1990s, it's is happening. But one thing that's just in the book, for example, as well as then in the 1980s, 
when South Korea is becoming more uh, globally known, as I said, for example, with the Seoul Olympics, uh, it does start to showcase uh, Korean culture in, in traditional culture uh, in, in a way that uh, um, it starts to make it better known uh, overseas. And this is done by, by South Korea, not by, uh, by, by North Korea. Uh, and, and this links to uh, your uh, original question, right, about the different trajectories. I think one thing which was in the book is uh, the combination of domestic and foreign factors in, in the case of, of the two countries, uh, but especially in the case of, of South Korea, because of course it was a more open uh, country as well, even if it was dictatorial during this uh, period of time, 1960s, 70s. Uh, but we stress uh, the, the relationship uh, with the U.S., of course, when it comes to external factors and how this actually helped uh, South Korea from an uh, economic point of view, not only from a, a security and foreign policy uh, point of view because of the struggles with the U.S. economy, also with the uh, Japanese economy as well after the two countries normalized relations with Korea uh, and, and Japan in the 1960s. Uh, but also the domestic level, you see this concerted effort by government and uh, the private sector, the big table that we all know about uh, today, or uh, Samsung LG uh, Estate, for example, uh, to try to drive economic growth in a way that makes the South Korean economy competitive uh, at the international level. So instead of trying to uh, shut down the country to foreign direct investment and to competition, uh, with uh, foreign firms, uh, South Korea takes the, the opposite approach, which is to try to make its companies uh, globally uh, competitive, and, and it was really successful to this in the 1980s and 1990s when many of these firms start to move up the variety chain and start to become more innovative rather than simply uh, producing more cheaply what, what, others, uh, what other countries or firms in other countries had already invented before, whether this was uh, the US or, or Western Europe or, uh, or or Japan or some other country. Uh, and I think one other aspect that we highlight as well is, is the, the, the resilience uh, of the South Korean people uh, and also the, the, the innovation of the South Korean people as, as well. How they uh, push uh, the country forward from an economic point of view. Uh, certainly, obviously, from a, from a political point of view, they were key in the transition to, to democracy, but uh, if we focus more on the economic side and the cultural side, uh, I think this was a key driver, 1980s, 1990s uh, onwards. Uh, and, and one last thing maybe to, to point out as well is that uh, sometimes referred to towards the beginning of disasters, how this was noticed uh, by, by foreign countries, uh, and not only countries in the in, in the West uh, during the Cold War, but also Central Eastern European countries. Uh, and I want to just stress this because back in the 1980s, uh, these countries, and, and you can even the, the Soviet Union uh, from the 1990s onwards, uh, ideologically they were still aligned with North Korea, but you see how they're looking at South Korea as not only the, the future of their economic growth, the type of political relations they want to have with the rest of the world, uh, also obviously from, an, um, uh, so from, a point of, from an economic uh, point of view, they see this as, as a present uh, for their countries. Um- so, Victor, I want to obviously you you have been uh, personally involved in setting um, Korean policy for the U.S. Um, you met with officials on both sides, including North Korea. Um, you know, from your I think from your kind of personal involvement in in advising on policy, setting policy, meeting meeting 
people on both sides of the of the Korean border. Um, you know, what what are some kind of the, the lessons you learned or insights you gleaned from from that experience that maybe didn't make their way into the newspapers or I guess or you know today's history books on on the subject. I think it, it's an interesting question. I would say the um, the impression that sticks with me the most is um, one time when I was coming back from North Korea on official travel, coming back from North Korea to South Korea, um, and uh, you know I'd seen sort of the destitution in North Korea uh, as as I was driven from Pyongyang to the DMZ to cross over and then fly in a helicopter, a military helicopter into into Seoul. Um, and then as I got closer to Seoul, you know, I'd seen the destitution in North Korea. And I get as I get closer to Seoul, you just see, you know, the skyline of South Korea. And the thing that struck me then and still sticks with me today is that this, it, you know, this there are two Koreas, but they're both Koreans. They're both populated by Korean people. The Korean people are still the same people in the North and the South. Um, and this is what opportunity versus um, uh, bad politics can do to a country. I, I mean, can do to a people. I mean, there culturally is nothing different between North and South Koreans that prevent them from both succeeding except the politics uh, that emerged on the peninsula and, and that has led the North in the direction of this going and the South in the direction that it's ascending. It was both, you know, it was a very meaningful and sad realization at the same time that this is what politics can do to a people. This is like the real effect of what politics can have on two people, two countries, um, um, uh, when the people are exactly exactly the same. You know, that, that, that will never leave me. That will always stick with me. And uh, that is also why I believe that eventually, uh, you know, if and when the division ends and there is unification, uh, North Koreans, if they're given the same opportunity, will do very, very well for themselves. I mean, to 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 stick on that point of of um, I guess I guess the bad politics kind of, um, you know, uh, obviously North Korea is um, isolated. It's poor. Um, the economy. <laughs> say, saying it doesn't work very well sounds like a big understatement. Um, but from a regime standpoint, um, the Kim family appears to be re like pretty secure in their position. Um, probably more secure in their position than in other totalitarian dictatorships you can see around the world. Um, how has the how has that family and that regime been able to? secure its position, you know, given all of North Korea's challenges? Or maybe is this a mistake? Or are we are we seeing it as more stable than it actually is? Um, so I think we always have to be careful when we talk about, you know, stable North Korean regime, because, um, you know, the North Korean regime, I think we say this in the book, the North Korean regime is stable up until the day it's not. Uh, and then the day that it's not stable, everybody will have said, oh, yeah, we knew this was coming. Right, uh, we knew that they, we knew that they were teetering on the brink of collapse. Um, so I think we always have to be careful when we say stable. Having said that, it is a fact that you know this regime has long outlasted the collapse of many other regimes like it since the end of the Cold War. Um, um, you know why is this the case? Well, I think in part it's because 
even though um, they don't get as much support as they used to during the Cold War, China is always there for North Korea, and it will always be there for North Korea. China sees, has, does, has decided that it is not in their interest to see a unified Korean peninsula with a democratic um, Korea sitting right on its border. And so they will continue to support North Korea. They won't help it enough to thrive, but they will help it enough to survive. Um, and that, I think, has been one factor. <clears throat> I, the other is that the regime has ruled with an iron fist. Um, it, it, has, um, it has captured uh, an elite group of about uh, a million um, uh, of party leaders, military officials, um, um, family uh, and then everybody else is just put to waste. And so the, the notion of a, of a revolution against an illegitimate leadership is very difficult to imagine in North Korea because people are just looking for to survive. They're just looking um, to, to uh, keep a roof over their head, to keep two meals a day on the table. And when, you're, and when they're in such destitute condition, it's hard for them to imagine or the notion of some sort of popular popular revolution. You can never say nothing, it won't happen, nothing is impossible. Um, but if I had to pick two factors, I would say those two are what allow the regime to continue as long as it has. Having said that, again, it's stable up until the day it is not. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to shift over to talk about reunification, which, which, which gets a whole chapter um in your book um and how and and there i want to know kind of one interesting observation that i hadn't really thought of which was um that that more dovish attitudes towards north korea like the sunshine policy actually reflected a bearish view on unification and south korea's ability to actually absorb um north korea which, which, which was an interesting observation that i hadn't thought of um but let's but let's talk about reunification policy and perhaps um we can start with Ramon for this question, is how um, attitudes towards reunification have um, changed in South Korea over the past several decades. Yes, I just say we, we have a full chapter on that. And I think the idea uh, behind this chapter was actually to show that there's not a single view or approach in, in, in the South, certainly, uh, towards uh, reunification, but also uh, at the same time to show how these different approaches, why, what is driving them, right? What are the reasons that there are these different approaches? Uh, and I think what uh, we try to uh, highlight as well yeah, is that, as you say, with this more Dovish approach uh, based on dialogue and, and towards unification, and, uh, what you have is this view is uh, can South Korea actually absorb the North because we call it unification, but, but since we saw with uh, Western Eastern Germany, essentially what we'd be talking is uh, about South Korea uh, driving the process, but also paying for the process for the, for, for the most part. Uh, and I think there is this uh, idea among certain um, groups in, in, in South Korea uh, that maybe this is uh, not going to be as, as it did as it would have seen, you know, uh, to the North in eighties and maybe uh, early nineteen nineties, uh, and therefore that South Korea has to take a, a, a cautious, uh, long term approach, uh, moving towards reconciliation uh, first, uh, trying to shape uh, North Korea and make it change before actually reunification can 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 take place. 
uh, and then I'm I'm oversimplifying it a bit here, but then you have the more um, conservative uh, approach, uh, which uh, focuses on 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 this idea. This is uh, what, what uh, eventually needs to happen, right? Unification between the two Koreas, but also that uh, North Korea is not going to be accepted uh, the way it is, right? The North Korea option needs to needs to change, uh, and that it is not uh, enough uh, to think about history, the, the, the millennial history of. Um, uh, Korea's unified country and think, okay, we'll just unify uh, because that's uh, historically we're a civil country, but also a mysterious change in, in, in North Korea. We, we also point out as well that uh, more recently, you know, have been South Korean leaders and South Korean groups that had more willing to see unification as an opportunity and how we think this matters because there has been this change in discourse, right, among certain groups that from an economic point of view, uh, it would be good. If, if, if Korea were reunified, obviously there would be a, a heavy cost, but there would be potential economic uh, advantages. And certainly also would also have a, a bigger country with an larger uh, population as well, which uh, could be uh, would be uh, more powerful. So so uh, that's why we hear the, the whole uh, chapter, right? To, this is essential to understand not only the pastel history of, of, of Korea, uh, but also uh, the present position of the of the two Koreas and what the future uh, may hold. Uh, there's also an interesting uh, survey that is included there, but I'll, I'll let Victor talk about it because it was led by by CSIS. Because one other thing we try to do uh, in the book is say, okay, what do North Koreans think about unification? But but Victor, I think yeah, I also said yeah, CSIS need the survey on this. So I think it's better if you if you need on this part. Sure. Uh, so um, one of the things that we did was we did some very uh, micro surveys. They're not they're not full surveys uh, to try to understand how North Koreans think about unification. And the it was actually quite interesting because um, you know there is uh, a view in South Korea, particularly among younger generations, where they don't really identify with unification uh, because. The, the division of Korea, the Korean War itself, are all things that they read about in history books. Um, it's not anything that they've experienced like the older generation, their grandparents or their great-grandparents might have experienced. Um, and so their views on unification are ambivalent at best, in some cases negative because they associate it with the economic cost of absorbing the North, which means taxes, which means uh, unemployment, uh, things of that nature. Uh, but when we uh, looked at how North Koreans thought about unification, relatively speaking, they were more enthusiastic than their brethren in the South. Um, <clears throat> and they were interested in it. In, you know, straight, interestingly enough, they, their support for unification was not what you would think it would be about. Like the primary factor wasn't sort of economics in the sense of unifying with the richer South is good for the North. That was not what motivated it. And it wasn't so much the security concerns, the notion that, oh, if we unify, then we don't have to worry about the United States threat anymore. Actually, the, the most um, um, interested reason for North Koreans had to do with ethnicity, uh, ethnic unity, ethnic nationalism, um, which really doesn't hardly registers at all in the South. I mean, there's some in the South who believe that, but the South, uh, for in general, South Korea has taken a much more materialistic, pragmatic approach 
um, to the concept of unification, while North Koreans look at it in a, in, in a more idealistic um, uh, frame that is infused by ethnic nationalism. Um, well, let's 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 take this point about about culture and. And I guess do a very awkward pivot into talking about Korea's success in the in the cultural industry. This is a question for for Ramon. I mean, this is um, I think I asked you this question the last time you were on the show. Um, but obviously, Korean culture is um, dominant right now, uh, especially for a country an economy of its size. Um, obviously, we have we have K dramas and Squid Game. We have K pop, um, and um, so Korea has had a lot of success in the cultural industry. Uh, but I guess can the success, like, are there are there lessons for this success for other countries? Can can this well can the success be emulated? And I guess going back to Korea, can the can the boom in Korean content continue? No, that's, that's a question. And well, I think that it would actually make sense because one of the reasons behind success of of Korean culture is that it mixes Korean roots, but also with a global outlook, right? So, as you know, in a central French world. Uh, Victor was saying that it's not based on, on, on ethnicity and making something that is only Korea and it would be difficult to understand overseas. Uh, and I would ask you a question. On, uh, I, I think so. I mean, in my case, I, uh, I, I lived in, in, in South Korea for the first time 20 years ago, actually, when I, when I was a student uh, at university. Uh, and, and back then, uh, there was this discussion uh, within the country whether uh, the Korean wave would continue to be successful after the initial success in, in Northeast and Southeast Asia. It was starting to be known in some places, uh, in some countries, for example, in, in, in Latin America, and even, even from the region, culturally interested in Korean culture. But uh, there was this belief that maybe this was over and that some other country or in the region, from outside the region, would be we would become the cultural powerhouse uh, across uh, across Asia. As I'm saying, for example, this is when 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 China was in the WTO, then maybe Chinese you know, modern culture would become uh, more popular. South Korean modern culture, and then we saw, of course, the, the globalization of Korean culture. And when when Korean uh, style took over the world, there was also uh, a discussion along these lines, right? Is this the peak of of, of K-pop? Really, and when it's going to be able to uh, to, to reach these uh, heights uh, or, or anymore. Uh, but then, of course, along came uh, BTS, I like Pink, uh, Korean movies, Korean dramas. Uh, and I see uh, there are a couple of, of reasons behind this success that other countries have tried to learn. Uh, one of them, if you look at Korean culture, uh, contemporary culture, mixes very well, well Korean roots with uh, themes that are. And really universal. I'm not only talking about love, but it can also include inequality. And for example, because that, that was parasite, that, that was first about already was about um, inequality in the rich and the poor within Korea. But the, the, well, anyone outside of the country could could uh, see what this uh, thing was and could relate uh, to it from their own uh, lived experience. Uh, and this is something that uh, I think uh, other countries could could try to look into. Right, how you mix your own roots in a way that makes it appealing to to those that might not be from your country with these universal feelings, uh, but also uh, a second important component uh, is uh, the way this culture has been distributed. So in the two thousands, uh, you saw many South Korean uh, music studios uh, later on, film studios as well. 
they try to reach out to a global audience uh, by the social media. And back then, obviously, social media was an answer ubiquitous like it is today, but this was a very good distribution channel because anybody can access it. Uh, but also, especially young people, that's how they consume uh, culture. So, so if a K-pop band uh, uh, wouldn't be uh, uh, the, the songs uh, uh, or wouldn't be uh, shown on a uh, TV show or they wouldn't be played in a radio station, uh, they would be distributed via uh, social media. And today, many of them, of course, don't become all YouTube hits. And this is a global uh, platform. So this is something that can you see uh, other countries trying to emulate. Some people say, for example, uh, Thailand in the future could be the next uh, Asian uh, cultural uh, powerhouse. In the past, of course, we had Japan, we had Hong Kong, we had different uh, parts of Asia that may be able to ready on their, their, their mojo and be able to, uh, to compete at the global level with South Korean uh, culture. Uh, one last thing that I would also uh, emphasize about the, whether this can be uh, emulated or not, uh, which is that uh, this is probably the first culture that has become globally successful without, without having uh, a universal language, right? Uh, we're not talking about English here that we can sort of understand, right? And I think that's something that other countries could look into, right? How they can incorporate their own culture, their own language, etc., etc., which is this is appealing to others overseas, uh, but also make some, some, some elements of uh, English or more universal languages that, for example, K-pop songs uh, do. So I'd maybe I'd like to kind of end by um, maybe looking at kind of what's happened in the Korean Peninsula since since you finished the book. Obviously, writing a book is a long process. There's an editing. Um, the book gets finalized, and then the world keeps on. <laughs> the news keeps on happening. Um, so so. I mean, given your work on the book, how have you seen some of the developments on this on the Korean Peninsula kind of kind of since the book finished? Um, and maybe we'll start with Victor and go to Ramon. But you know, South Korea um, has a new president. It does seem to have carved a niche for itself in the arms industry, especially after Ukraine. Um, the North continues to be the North with missile tests and trying to maybe set up the next generation of leaders. Um, but in terms of kind of what what's happening in Korea right now. Um, how does that fit into kind of kind of the story you're trying to tell in the book? Um, maybe let's start with Victor and then end with um, Ramon. Um, so I think in terms of the themes of the book, again, one of the themes of the book has been how when Korea has been weak, the external environment has really determined Korea's fate for better or for worse. Um, you know, and like we said at the start of the podcast in the late 19th century, it uh, drove Korea into becoming a colony of one of the imperial powers, Japan, for half a century. Um, <clears throat> but then also during the Cold War, Cold War imperatives caused the United States to adopt Korea as a military treaty ally and then provide huge amounts of assistance to it to keep it secure and eventually help um, um, help lay the path, although the United States wasn't the only party, lay the path um, to for Korea to become a democracy. So. My point here is that uh, the external environment, when Korea internally has been um, conflicted, uh, has really been determinative of, of the fate of Korea. And I think what we're seeing now is a Korea that's much more confident, at least I'm talking about a South Korea, that's much more confident, that is affluent, 
Uh, that is the sixth strongest military in the world, the 10th largest economy in the world. As you mentioned earlier, discussed earlier with Ramon, in terms of culture is, is a trendsetter now. Korea is the cutting edge, whether you're talking about memory chips or whether you're talking about pop music or the next Netflix Kate, uh, drama. You know, Korea is really sort of at the top of its game, if you will, South Korea. And I think what we're also seeing is that it's it's increasingly playing a global role. Um, again, whether we're talking about culture, whether we're talking about uh, uh, you know memory chips, bioscience, um, the arms in industry you mentioned, Korea is really sort of on a global stage now. I wouldn't even say a middle power anymore, playing uh, uh, much more above the weight of a middle power. You know, it now participates in meetings of NATO leaders. Uh, it participated in the last G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. Um, it's um, a major player in the in environmental issues, climate change, um, in development assistance around the world. Uh, there's just a host of things where Korea plays on a global scale, um, <clears throat> way off the peninsula, uh, in ways that nobody could have managed, imagined. Uh, you know, in 1953, at the end of the Korean War, right? This this year is the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War, and it's just no one could have imagined that South Korea could have done what it's doing now. And I think that is showing how it is. It has made itself much stronger, much sta more stable, much more secure, such that its fate will be determined by Korea and not by the external environment. Can I? I, I would add to to this. I, I want that to the South Korean. Uh, but uh, we're able to, to discuss recent development in, in, in South Korea, North Korea as well. So we're able to discuss, for example, uh, Kim Chue, right? Uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un's daughter uh, making an appearance. So, so that's something that we were able to, to do in the book as well. And as you said, the uh, um, missile tests that that continue and also the, the COVID-19 situation in, in, in North Korea. So it was literally the first time to South on its borders, even before, before China. Uh, and the last one to to open them is still reopening them. So, so in a sense, what we show as well when we talk uh, about the north is how the country seems to be setting itself for the uh, next generation to 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 take over, uh, but also how its different its different position vis-a-vis -vis South Korea has been exacerbated by why the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, I mean, South Korea response to the Korean 19 pandemic was, was, was very good, one of the best ones in, in the world, and North Korea said the opposite, by the first country shut down, the last one to open up, so that's the approach they, they, they took, and, and then uh, we have these credible reports about uh, uh, the North Korean regime being this this uh, uh, order world uh, with China to try to tighten the control over the, the population, where this is possible to the state or not, is a completely uh, different question. So, so I think this that we show in, in the book, the growing difference between both of them uh, has really uh, continued uh, in, in recent months and weeks, and it seems to be that it's going to continue uh, for the uh, foreseeable future. Um, we have the more confident and open South Korea that Victor has described, and, and in the north, uh, there seems to be a regime that doesn't know which uh, which direction to take, or this is taking no direction, it's actually to really or shut down the borders even more and, 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 and look uh, upon itself even more rather than trying to, to change the direction of the country. Well, I think that's a great place to end our interview with Victor Cha and Ramon Pacheco-Pardo, 
on Korea, a new history of South and North. Um, I actually have two final questions for the both of you. Uh, and maybe maybe Ramon can go first and then Victor can go second. But the two questions are, um, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next? What might the next project be? So uh, um, it, it has already uh, come out in, in Europe book. And actually, over these past few, few days, I was uh, walking around uh, central London. Uh, where where I live and, and is in most bookstores actually uh, quite a few bookstores already. Uh, well, uh, let me show them actually uh, as as soon as you can uh, into uh, in, in, inside, right? Uh, so so it's uh, bright pink the color. So it's easy to identify. Uh, you can certainly find it online. Uh, and actually, uh, a few days ago, I was in 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 South Korea. I was in Seoul, uh, and they told me that uh, in sort of even stock. Uh, but some, by some of the bookstores uh, in the in, in, in the country, uh, it's already uh, being sold uh, there. Uh, but also, as I say, you can find it online. And in my case, in my case what next? Uh, well, I do hope to be able to enjoy the release of this book see, for the next few weeks and 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 months. I mean, I have a, an academic book on software strategy uh, with Columbia University Press, but I really hope to work and enjoy the. The release of this book, uh, you know, with the balance uh, uh, well, interviews talking about it as much as possible uh, or to, to savor uh, really what has been a, a really enjoyable enterprise, which is uh, buying a book, but writing a book with uh, with Victor, who is uh, one of my idols in this, in this field. Um, well, uh, the as Ramon said, the book has been released in Europe. It has not been released in the United States yet. So... Um, um, so we haven't we haven't seen the reception here. The uh, the book I I believe it's still the number one book on Amazon uh, for books on Korea. Admittedly, that's not a big market, but we'll take it. You know, it's, it's great to be able to say that you're number one on Amazon. Um, and I too really enjoyed doing this project with my cup with the, my co-author Ramon. It was really very easy to do, and um, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, my next project actually is is something that I'm working on that's it's tangentially related to Korea. It's really focused more on China, uh, and in particular, um, uh, how the uh, how the world, the multilateral trading order, is going to deal with China's economic coercion, uh, China's use of economic coercion, its weaponization of economic interdependence. So, a completely different project um, that uses a lot of trade data. Um, very different from uh, the book that we did on Korea, but of course, as some of your listeners may know, Korea for both Ramon and I, Korea is our first and main love, and um, and that's why we continue to research it, and I will continue to research it uh, after I finish this book on Chinese economic coercion. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network, NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for more news who's coming up on the show. Uh, but before then, uh, Ramon, Victor, thank you so much for both of you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.